Hello and welcome to In Unison. I'm Zane Fiala. And I'm Giacomo G. Gregoli. And this is our podcast all about new choral music and the composers, conductors, choristers, and administrators who bring it to life. Let's start the show! Hey everyone, welcome to In Unison Season 5. This series of episodes is all about ensembles. We've got an exciting lineup of choral groups from around the world, and we're going to be talking with both their artistic and executive leadership about the history, operations, and overall ethos of each organization. As we've said before, we want this podcast to be a resource for our choral community, so hopefully these episodes will provide you with ideas, inspiration, and excitement for the future of your own choral music making. Today's episode is all about the world-famous Santa Fe Desert Chorale. So let's get started by getting acquainted with that Desert Chorale sound. From their 2018 album, The Road Home, here is the traditional shaker song, Encouragement. Okay, today on In Unison, we are joined by two guests. First, it is my absolute pleasure to welcome back 
Dr. Joshua Haberman. Not only was Josh my mentor through graduate school, but he is also the artistic director for the Santa Fe Desert Corral, the ensemble we'll be focusing on in today's episode. Our second guest is Emma Marzen, the executive director for the Desert Corral, and our goal today is to shed some light on the artistic and executive operations of this world-famous ensemble. Now, how about a little biographical information on our guests? A California native, Dr. Joshua Haberman is a graduate of Georgetown University and the University of Texas at Austin, where he completed doctoral studies in conducting with Craig Hella Johnson. From 96 to 2008, Josh served as assistant conductor for the San Francisco Symphony Chorus, as well as professor of music at San Francisco State University. From there, he headed off to Florida and was director of choral studies at the University of Miami Frost School of Music for a few years before landing in his current positions as AD for the Desert Chorale, as well as director of the Dallas Symphony Chorus. Next, a professionally trained singer and native of Baltimore, Maryland, Emma Marzen holds a certificate in professional fundraising from Boston University and a Bachelor of Music in Music Business and Entertainment Industries from the University of Miami. While an undergraduate, she managed the Frost School of Music concert facilities and led the Frost School of Music's student-run record label, Kane Records, garnering the 2016 Independent Music Award for Best Album Compilation with its release, For the Record. Emma most recently served as Board Relations Manager of the Santa Fe Opera, one of the world's leading opera companies, and in her previous role as Assistant Director of the Santa Fe Desert Chorale, Emma was responsible for the coordination and execution of development, community engagement, operations, and programming initiatives. And finally, the Santa Fe Desert Chorale is a 24-voice professional choir in Santa Fe, New Mexico, founded in 1982 by artistic director Larry Banfield. The Desert Chorale is one of the longest-running professional music organizations in New Mexico and is recognized as one of the finest American chamber choirs. The Chorale sings repertoire spanning seven centuries from early polyphony to contemporary works, and the singers in the group come from all over the country. Emma, Josh, thank you so much for joining us today. We are very excited to talk all about the Santa Fe Desert Corral with you. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you. Excited to be here. Welcome both. It's lovely to see you again, Josh and Emma. It is lovely to meet you and to get to know so much more about the Santa Fe Desert Corral. Let's start off by getting our audience to know each of you personally a little bit better with an icebreaker. Uh, let's start off with Emma because I'm very curious about your answer to the, this, this particular question. It's near and dear to my heart. Uh, Making a career in the arts is a challenge. So what was your first job and how did it prepare you for the career you're in now? Well, I'll try not to, to wax poetic on this one, but um, my first real job, my first full-time job was as the box office manager of the Santa Fe Desert Corral. <laughs> so <laughs> I, um, I feel like I really learned... Um, just a, a little bit of everything when I started off in that position. Um, things were, you know, we had a very small staff at that time. Uh, we started out with three full-time staff members under um, the executive director at that time, Janice Mayer. And within six months of my being on the job, um, my two colleagues had uh, left the organization for, for new positions. And it was down to just myself and, and uh, the executive director. So I was really able to get my hands on just about everything uh, that the organization 
was doing and really had an, a pretty intense boot camp on how to run a nonprofit arts organization. And in particular, uh, the Desert Corral. Did anything shock you when you were like, oh my gosh, I've got fingers in 10 different pies? Were there things that you gravitated more towards or things that you felt like, whoa, I had no idea that this was how the sausage was made? Gosh, it's a great question. I, you know, I think I really fell in love with development work in particular. Um, I've always been, you know, deeply interested in community engagement work. And so that came sort of naturally uh, for me, but, but the development side of things surprised me. I didn't think that that would be an area um, of, of immense interest to me. And it really became probably my, my favorite thing to do. And it remains uh, to this day, I think, an exciting challenge. You know, it's, it's always something new and you really have to continue evolving and, um, and building relationships. And so that is probably the best thing that I learned and, um, and what continues to serve me most today. I have a thousand more follow-up questions for you about development. And then I, I'm going to set that aside for just a moment so that we can get Josh's answer to this question as well. Josh, what was your first job that that lined you up for a career in the arts? Well, I would say like a lot of people, I had a lot of jobs that were not arts related. And um, and most of them didn't prepare me in any way, meaningful way to do anything in the arts. Um, but there was one I would point to, and that was teaching. I, as, as Zane knows, since we go back a long time, I have a language background. Foreign languages was always a, a passion. And one of my first, what I would consider adult jobs was actually teaching languages. And although that sounds unrelated to directing choirs, it's actually kind of some of the same stuff because you are motivating a group of people to a common purpose. You're trying to make them interested in something that may or may not be familiar to them. Um, that's in a foreign language, obviously. Um, is the case sometimes with choral music, but it's also speaking to the power of words and the intersection of people and words and the beauty of texts and the expression of humans, you know, through this through the written word, and sometimes mediated and eventually through music. So for me, I look back at that and I think, even though you know, I wish I was in a piano practice room since I was five, you know, and and would be so much of a better player and I'd be a better singer if I'd been studying earlier. All those years that I spent doing languages and literature, I think served me pretty well in terms of de developing a sensitivity to people and a sensitivity to, to the way that humans express themselves. That's beautiful. I was just, uh, you know, we had two SF State alums come back to IOCSF this last season, Benjamin Liu Paogo and Brianne Martin. Nice. And having them both return was just so wonderful, and it just really filled my heart with joy. But uh, after our final concert, the three of us found ourselves reminiscing, and we were recalling the story of when we went on tour to Aix-en-Provence to do the Durifle Requiem over there in France, and you were directing, you were rehearsing the ex uh, youth choir, the Provence youth, uh, not choir, youth orchestra in preparation. And you led the entire rehearsal in French. And I remember just being so blown away by how adept you were and what a great leader and teacher and, and inspiration you were, regardless of the fact that this language was totally not English and you were just flowing right through it. And we all had a moment of uh, admiration and, and, uh, and fond memory of that moment of watching that happen because it was impressive. You don't know how bad I was, Zane. If you spoke better French, you would know that I was making all kinds of mistakes and they were mostly just very kind to roll with it. <laughs> 
well, it was impressive to me, nonetheless. <laughs> so I think maybe what we could do is start off with Emma giving us a little bit of a history of the Santa Fe Desert Corral, the background, how it got started, um, how such a renowned coral institution could crop up in Santa Fe of all places. So the Desert Corral was founded in 1982 uh, by Larry Banfield. Larry um, was a businessman in his in his previous uh, in his previous life, and was the owner of Pearl Drops Toothpaste. But late in his life, found um, I think a significant love for uh, for choral conducting, for choral music, and um, I can't recall where he studied, but I know that. From that program, um, he just decided that he had to start up his own professional choir, and he wanted to do so in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And so he founded this organization. He uh, began raising all of the funds himself, created the board or gathered the board members, I should say, um, and really kicked off what I think was a relatively, uh, if not new concept, something uh, rare at least in the United States, in terms of professional choral organizations. And so um, it's now one of the longest running professional um, choirs in the, in the country and probably in the world. And uh, it's all thanks to Larry and what he did in those first years. Amazing. Is Larry still with us? He is not. He passed away. Um, Josh met with him, I know, before he passed. Yeah, it was a pleasure. I, I met Larry first as a student when I was at University of Texas and we came on tour to Santa Fe and were hosted by the Desert Corral. So we actually sang in one of the venues in Santa Fe and I met him at that time. And then I met him later in his life. He had moved to San Francisco, oh. which of course is my hometown and yours. So I was there home and I made um, an effort to reach out to him and he was lovely and just had the nicest things to say. And He's the rare artistic founder who was willing to step aside and share his organization with other leaders. That's a fairly rare thing to do. You know, most of us who form these organizations, we die in the saddle, if you will. <laughs> and Larry realized that the group had grown and matured and it was ready to be handed off to others. And so he did that to um, Dennis Schrock, who followed him, who's a wonderful scholar and choir director. And then Dennis was followed by Linda Mack. Who led the ensemble for several years, and then and then I came along. It sounds like an incredibly unique uh, and and wonderful group uh, comprised of of professional singers. Josh, how would you describe the ethos of the group? Yeah, I would say that the chorale has a unique culture, and it's something that we guard really carefully. Um, we seek to be a group that has extremely high professional standards, as you would expect of one of the leading American chamber choirs. But it's been my experience that so many of those professional groups have, for whatever reason, um, in their performance style, in the way that they present themselves, a certain distance from the thing that attracted all of us at the very beginning, which is a genuine human passion to communicate. And I feel like that, um, I feel like that's a false path. I feel like just because we're pros and just because we're working at a high level is no reason to set aside that connection piece and that um, just the human piece of making music, which is one human soul reaching out to another. And so what we endeavor to do, and you know, we do it always to differing levels of success with every concert and every season and every rehearsal, but the ethos that undergirds what we do 
is to combine high professional standards with passionate advocacy for an art form that we love and a genuine human connection. And it sounds like this is an ethos that was begun before your time with the Desert Corral and you kind of just picked up the uh, the baton and continued that. Is there anything that you would say you've contributed or Emma, maybe do you think Josh has contributed um, anything unique to the ethos of the organization? Oh gosh. Well, I would say Josh um, has actually defined that ethos. I mean, I'm sure it was there, you know, in part before, but Josh's, you know, like he was saying before, his natural communication, his ability to connect with others um, and to really, you know, make everyone feel valued, respected and cared for um, has, I think, taken that ethos to another level entirely. And it's something that we um, we emulate or try to emulate in the staff and uh, the board of directors as well, so that the entire organization is really operating um, with with that care. I love, Josh, how you described uh, the notion of human souls connecting with one another, that at the, the heart of it all, it is still just people communicating with others and, uh, and sharing something that you'd like to say. So what's a typical performance like? Um, well, as you, as you said, the, the repertoire varies hugely, but there is kind of a through line, I would say, in what you could expect if you come to hear the Desert Crowd, what are you going to hear? You're going to hear some familiar things. You know, you're going to hear some central pieces of the canon because that's part of what we do is to keep that canon alive and to do the great composers that, you know, many of us know form the central sort of spine of, of that repertoire. And yet at the same time, we're always looking for new things. As Zane will tell you, since he and I did a bunch of choral music together, I'm always looking for these, you know, crazy, unusual pieces off the wall. And I know that's something that you guys do. Um, a lot in, in your group with IOCSF. Um, but whatever the repertoire is, I would say that what you can expect to, to happen is to be taken on a journey. You know, there's always a narrative, a through line. I, I feel like my job as a choir director is certainly to make the music to the highest possible standard and to make it artistically beautiful. But again, it's also to forge that human connection and I'm convinced, especially in Santa Fe, you know, many of our audiences, you may or may not have a background in choral music. We're not in San Francisco, we're not in Boston, we're not in these cities that necessarily have like an early music crowd, or we have a very specialist, you know, audience that comes. There's a lot of people who just walk through the door of the cathedral in Santa Fe and say, what's this? And so our programming has to speak to them as well. Um, and my feeling is what speaks to everybody is the idea of the human story. It's narrative. There's some through line that's telling a story in the music that says, this is my story and you can find yourself in it. And it may be that this story is coming from the point of view of an Estonian child singing, you know, a, a child song, or it could be a, a war song from somebody across the world that you've never heard. And yet there's some resonance in it and there's some through line. So the idea is that one piece, certainly through the text or possibly the style of music speaks to the next in a meaningful way to tell a human story that we hope will resonate with our audiences. Let's take a brief pause in the conversation now and listen to a performance by the Santa Fe Desert Chorale from a 2018 concert in Cathedral Basilica of St. Francis of Assisi in Santa Fe. This is Charles Stanford's iconic, The Bluebird. Thank you. 
let's let's talk about how uh, the rubber meets the road, how Josh and Emma maybe work together to bring these things to life. Maybe the two of you can sort of paint a picture for us about how you plan an artistic season. What's what's take us from go an idea in one of your minds to taking your final curtain calls at the performance. Well, that's all you, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll take it as far as the artistic goes, and then I'll hand it off the administrator because we have, you know, we are co-leaders of the organization, and it's structured very much that way, and we work that way. So we're mutually responsible to each other, and we have each our own sphere of influence, which we always are really great about respecting. Mostly because I don't want to administer the organization. <laughs> you know, I'm just deeply grateful for having a partner who has those skills. But Emma, Emma secretly does want to conduct, so just just <laughs> so you know. <laughs> I can't think of anything more terrifying, no. <laughs> I would say, you know, the, the, so the planning pattern, I would say that the horizon is usually about three years, so that it would take from, let's say, a germ of an idea, where I'm saying, hey, I think it would be cool to do X until, as you said, you know, we're singing that music in concert. It's about three years. And the way that works is I, I keep ideas. I'm a pencil and paper person, a little bit of a technology Luddite. I think you may be able in your camera view to see in a, a 1990s era iPod behind me. Oh, yes. So you know kind of like my, yeah, my like, um, I'm very old school. So I keep ideas in on a piece of paper, you know, and notebooks that I carry around with me. And I just develop them and think, what, what story is hiding in here? Um, what do we want to say? Uh, you know, I have an idea. Okay, it's Nordic music because I love Scandinavian music. Or this is Latin America. Or this is somehow related to a story of a child's journey. What do we have to say? And then music will begin to fall around it in my mind. I do the best of my thinking usually early in the morning, um, which my college roommates would laugh at now because I was known as somebody who couldn't take a class before 10 a.m. <laughs> um, but that's certainly changed with age. And so I do a lot of planning early and, and I'm comfortable with that. Um, I'll propose a series of concerts to our board of directors and say, this is what I'm thinking. That, that process of like the germs all the way to proposing it, that's usually a year or maybe a year and a half. And I feel like it needs to be that long because eventually I always come up with an idea. I start programming it and then I put it away. And it's in my view in the creative process, it's really important to do that. You can't just cram the paper the night before and hand it in and expect it to be good. And we've all done that. But the best editing, the best artistic creation is for me, what it happens over time. So I'll write down an idea. I'll get some core pieces together. I put it away. I come back to it in four weeks. I look at it and I say, this is crap. I hate all of it. And then I throw it away and I say, well, okay, so this part isn't crap, but this is. So let's start with this good idea and pare it down and rebuild it. And then I'll put it away for three weeks and then come back to it and you can see where I'm going. So by the time I've done this a couple of times, I have something that I feel like has withstood scrutiny, which is really important, you know, so that what you get at the end of that is a well-cooked meal instead of something that I just threw together from whatever I could find in my fridge. And um, at that point, I say, okay, I feel good about these, you know, this artistic idea. It may be 60% fleshed out at this point. And then I take it to the board and I say, this is what I'm interested in doing. And I share it with Emma, obviously, previous to that. And I say, how do we fund this? These are the costs that I see. This is the idea. Do you think this is viable? 
And Emma, let me just pass this over to you at this point and maybe you can run with it. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so we we then take it into the administrative side of things and, and figure out how to make it happen, how to make the vision happen. Um, so with the funding, you know, it's it's all about the budgeting, really looking at just the nuts and bolts um, of how many players are involved, you know, um, from our wonderful singers to instrumentalists, um, the, the associated costs of doing of doing what we do, like travel, housing, the nitty gritty. Um, and then we figure out, you know, okay, here's what it's going to cost. And here are, here are the ways that we can fund it between grants, um, individual contributions, board contributions, sponsorships, um, and of course, ticket sales. And so once we get through that piece of it, then um, the fun comes of, of really figuring out you know, how do we market this? How do we promote it and make sure that people um, understand to the best of our ability what they're going to hear um, and why they should be interested in attending? And so that's that's really what we do, um, you know, for probably, I would say, in, a, in an ideal situation, at least half a year. Um, we're in the process right now of, of really working out the final details for this coming year um, for 2022, starting in the summer. And so it's just putting the final touches on, on the look and feel and everything associated. Emma, what are the similarities and differences in that sort of storytelling that you tell to the audience to garner their interest uh, between sort of t- telling that story to the audience and telling it during the development process? Are there similarities where, you know, you're talking to the crowds who are funding this concert? Talk me through sort of what's the same and what's the difference about sharing that story in those contexts. Yeah, well, I would say Josh really um, helps us to tell that story in the best way possible to all of these audiences um, by really coming up with uh, a compelling story within the programming, as he was talking about earlier. And so he hands it to us and says, "Here's here's the story that I'm telling. And then we take that language and we don't have to shift it too much, frankly, um, for any of those audiences. You know, for our donors, for those who are sponsoring, we want them to be just as excited about it as Josh and as we are. And likewise, uh, for our patrons, for our audience members, um, it's really to to capture the imagination, to make sure they understand um, the story that is being told, and. Um, and that it's done so in, in a sort of short and sweet uh, way. So that's that's ever, I think the battle is is really condensing it down to to something that is extremely easy to digest, um, but also extremely compelling and exciting. Now, Josh, you were talking about <clears throat> you know coming up with this kind of germ of an idea and and trying to decide what story to tell, and then you start to place pieces and repertoire starts to kind of come into focus and you start to put the pieces into place. I have wondered, do you just have a wealth of knowledge in your brain that you just go, what's a piece that fits this theme? And then it just falls out of the sky and smacks you up the head. Or do you have other resources that you can tap into or that you do tap into to, to seek out repertoire to fill in the slots? Yeah, both and for sure. Um, I'm insatiably curious, so I am always looking for choral music, <laughs> you know, one of the, 
one of the great challenges and I was a university professor for so many years and all this, you know, folks that I work with and, you know, I hope you remember us having these conversations was, was to tell choral people like your job is so different from orchestral conductors because, you know, in the old model, now orchestral conductors who are interesting are doing more interesting things than this, but in the old model, it was really easy in an orchestra concert to have a concerto. Let's say you start with an overture, you have a concerto, you do intermission, you do a symphony on the other side and you're done. Or you're programming an opera and you say, la boheme, great, and we're off and running, right? <laughs> it's pretty straightforward, not to say that there are attendant challenges with all those things, right? But as far as the programming piece goes, it's much more straightforward. But we work in an art form, unless you're working in symphonic music, which is what I do in the rest of my life. But in Desert Crowd, mostly we're not working in that field. So if you're not, you're dealing with smaller pieces. And so then it becomes like, how do these pieces speak to each other? Otherwise, it's just a bunch of chicken soup. Like, oh, that was pretty. That was pretty. Why, are, why did those stand next to each other? There has to be a reason in my view. And so, um, yeah, that storytelling is important. Now, where does it come from? I'm just looking for choral music all the time. We're soliciting new music from composers. We're looking for things um, from colleagues, especially. My favorite question whenever I'm with choral people is, what do you know that I don't know? Mm -hmm. You know, That's why we started this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> there is no reason not to crowdsource this thing. I mean, you don't have to be an expert. I, I feel like so many people, you know, are, uh, are sort of rigid in that way and say, like, I have to be the author of every creative, interesting impulse that anybody's ever had. And I think... People have been stealing creative ideas since the beginning of time, and it's not stealing, it's paying homage to somebody else who had a great idea, and you say, what could I do with this? That's what artists do, that's what musicians do, right? And so, first of all, you credit those people, which I, you know, try to do, and then also, you know, use your own experience to fill that in. But certainly, the thing that I've learned is that the narrative has to come first, the story that we're telling has to come first, and the pieces will follow from that, you know? Um, it's rare that I would say, I want to do a concert with, of Schoenberg, Friedhof Erden. It has to be that piece. Now, what story are we going to tell? I don't, I don't tend to come at it that way. It can happen, but most often it's more like, what's parenthood about? Mm. What does it mean to be in revolution? What do we have to say about grief? I think those are compelling ideas. Okay, and now there's a concert that can flow from that. That's kind of the way that my brain works. I love it. Very inspiring. So I have to imagine now you've got you've got an idea, you've got a process by which you are sort of bringing this this concept to life. There's a development process. There's an artistic process. The piece that we haven't really talked about is wow. I have to imagine that you must have quite the stable of artists to bring together to also sort of make this happen. What's the process like of bringing these folks together to to bring these concepts and the storytelling to life? Well, maybe I could tackle the, the sort of how do we find these folks piece and then and then Emma could tackle the how do we take care of these folks piece? Because they're equally important. Um, we I'm fortunate to have inherited an organization that already had a good group of artists who are associated. So some of the artists that sing with Desert Crowd predate my time. And I'm around 13, 14 years now, but some of them have been there longer. So, you know, we have inherited some great folks. At the same time, there was a certain artistic renewal that we wanted to see happen with my um, arrival. And I was fortunate to sing in groups like um, Desert Crowd. I had sung with um, Conspirari, with my teacher, Craig Johnson, and in a couple other groups like that. And so I had had some um, connections in that chamber choir world. And I'll say that we're entering a golden age right now in our country 
of really wonderful singers who are coming out with flexible sets of skills, who can sing operatically, who can sing for professional chamber choirs, who can sing straight tone, who can sing full. And all of that is required for the Desert Chorale because we have a very unique model that I hope we can chat about, about the summer festival and the fact that we have a lot of variety in our program. So the artists that we're looking for are people who are comfortable doing a lot of different things. We're not an early music group. We're not a new music group. We're a group that essentially does everything that is choral music. And so the singers that are happiest are singers that are quite flexible. They can step out and do a solo. Maybe they have a background in jazz. Maybe they have a background in gospel music. Maybe they don't. You know, there's a wide variety of skills there. But those singers that have flexibility are the ones that are happiest. And where do we find them? There's a network now. And it's an extraordinarily great time in our country for this, where people are turning out of academic programs. Voice faculties are waking up to the fact that there are more professional opportunities in ensemble singing than there are in operatic singing. And that trend is only continuing. So I think that this sort of golden age that we're entering into now, we're going to look back in 100 years and say, this was the beginning. I, have only, you know, I only think it's going to get better in terms of the skills that people have. But we've been fortunate to have an extraordinary um, group of artists. And then they sing with other people who they know. And so the best source of artists for us is other artists, mm. you know, artists that we already work with. And they say, this person would be a great fit, not only vocally, but personally, because we guard that culture really carefully. And they say, you know, personally, can I recommend this person to you? So we're always looking for um, artists through artists. That's certainly the way that it works the most. But then I'm always traveling around and hearing folks and, and trying to get a new generation of voices in because we want this organization to have another 40 years and another 40 years and another 40 years after that when Emma and I are long in the old folks' home <laughs> and it's still running better than it ever was. What's a Real quick before we hand off to Emma, what's a typical audition look like for the Desert Corral? It's, it's normal. Like It's what everybody's done. You know, you come in, you sing a couple of pieces. They're contrasting in different styles and different languages and all that. But it also involves a conversation, you know, just to get a sense of a person and say, why this? Why now? Why this for you? What interests you about this? Where does this fit in your life? What are you passionate about? Um, you know, the, the basic frame that I always have in my mind is voice, head and heart. So obviously a person has to have an exceptional voice. They have to have a certain, uh, I, I don't want to say a certain way of thinking, but an intellectual curiosity about the world. Is this somebody who's engaging? Is this somebody who can tell a story in an effective way? Not in an expected only one way to do it, but in a personal way that's compelling to that person. And then finally, the heart piece. You know, we're together for weeks at a time, not just days. And so what that means for us is it can't just be a gig that you come in and you do and then you check out. First of all, because we don't pay well enough. You know, <laughs> like none of the chamber choirs do. No, no one can earn a great living doing this. So you have to be motivated by the right things. You know, we pay reasonably as best we can, and we're improving every, every, every year, and Emma will talk about that. But we also want to have a heart piece, which is to say, is this person the fit for our culture? Is this person the person who will continue to support our mission and what we're doing? So maybe, Emma, we can pivot over and tell us a little bit about bringing all these folks together, because this is not, this is a pretty unique model, I think, as it pertains to, to chamber singing and this sort of organization. Uh, maybe you can tell folks a little bit more about that. Happy to. Um, our artists, as Josh mentioned, um, are coming to us from all over the country, and they're coming to us for specific periods of time. 
So every one of our artists um, is an independent contractor and uh, they are, are contracted by season. So we will have typically a, um, a, a quite a different set of artists in the summer versus in the winter. And, um, and it's, it works out beautifully. We um, are able to do similar models of, of housing and taking care of our artists when they're here in Santa Fe. Um, but essentially the summer season is um, about, I would say four weeks long in total um, from the time that, you know, folks are traveling here to the time they're traveling away. And um, during that period, they are housed together sometimes. Um, you know, some folks bring their families and are able to be here um, with their with their partner, with their children during this period. Um, and so it really becomes, I hate to use this cliche, but like a family almost during that time. And I think many of the artists very much feel that way with each other, with Josh, um, and with the organization at large, that it's really like coming back home um, to do this thing that they love. But of course, that this is a paid opportunity. I mean, it's, it's paid work. It's, it's their career. And so we are ever working to make sure that, like Josh said, we can do uh, as much as possible to pay our artists as much as we can. And so it's a top priority of the organization to continue improving artist compensation, to continue improving the experience when they're here so that it continues to be um, something that that our artists love to do and want to do for years to come. So it's it sounds like quite the operation. And it, what's interesting is from your first story of where there was an executive director and then you at the box office, I have to imagine that, I mean, have things changed over the course of time? What is the administrative machinery that helps bring this organization to life every season? So we have definitely shifted um, over the past 40 years in terms of our administrative staff, our administrative capacity. At this moment in time, um, I, I feel we have a really healthy staff. I'm currently um, in the process of hiring for a full-time development manager, and then am looking to bring on um, another staff member, another full-time staff member, which would bring us to a total of um, four full-time staff plus myself. And so um, for an organization of our size, um, of our budget size, we are still pretty lean um, in, in our staffing, but we do have some exceptional um, employees. So I, I think we have just been able to do um, beautiful work with, with very, um, I, I would say, lean resources. Um, but we are continuing to grow and really growing to be able to support the artistic product. Um, because that is why we are here, is to be the Desert Corral. I think it's extraordinary. I mean, I, I don't know if our listeners understand how extraordinary that is. I mean, with an organization of your size, to be able to hire anyone at all, let alone to have a, a staff of that size. I mean, and it's something that probably resonates with Bay Area folk, Bay Area folk when you think about, you know, the small, lean startups that are trying to do all of the things versus the big behemoths that, you know... I, and no offense, I mean, sort of, Josh, as you'd said before, for symphonic work or for sort of larger established organizations, it's like, you don't really have to think about that. You know, you've got a well-oiled machine and, you know, usually very well endowed and, you, you know, you can sort of come into seasons and know what you're going to do and it's fine. It's much more fascinating to me 
to, to hear these stories of how, um, you know, people with passion and heart are making something happen. And it sounds like, correct me if I'm wrong, but part of the ethos on the administrative side is also this notion that, like, we exist for the art, right? That, like, being able to pay our artists and be able to sort of make sure that folks can make a living of this feels like it's a top-level priority for the organization. Without a doubt. Yeah. No, it, we... We remind ourselves of that fact every day. I mean, it's it's incredibly easy, uh, I think, to sort of forget why you're here, which is a strange thing when you when you are a musician yourself, when you care so deeply about this work, but you can get sucked into you know the day to day, the challenges that you face. But whenever we can remind ourselves of the mission of why we do what we do, it it makes the work easy and fun and really joyful. So that's that's the ethos that I really um, work to instill in myself and um, and in the staff every day. I feel like we're, you know, in, in just chatting with the two of you, Josh and Emma, it's like you, you literally are completing one another's sentences and sort of talking about both sides of the same coin, which is wonderful. Maybe, Josh, we can toss it over to you to talk a little bit about um, what is the ideal working relationship between the left and the right hand? I mean, what is it like when the artistic and executive sides of an organization are working swimmingly well? Well, I think you're right about the way things are going now. And um, for me, it's a combination of healthy boundaries, mutual respect, and mutual admiration. So, and then the willingness to cross over when necessary. So for me, I, you know, Emma will bring an administrative concern. We have weekly meetings. We're on Zoom all the time. Like, hey, what's going on with you? This is what I'm working on. Uh, this relates to you. Hey, what do you think about this? And I might say, well, that's an administrative issue. So here's my opinion, but that's your call, right? So I support whatever you decide. But if you want my opinion, I'd be happy to give it to you. And vice versa, I'll say, you know, I'm struggling with this artistic thing. Emma has a musical background. She's a very fine singer and knows choral repertoire. And so I might say, I'm thinking about this, or how do we position this? How do we market this? Does this make sense to you? And she'll give me her opinion. But I always know that that's my call. And I appreciate that. So they're never, it never feels like a power struggle, you know, in that relationship, which I really appreciate. But it's also not completely separate. We say, well, bro, that's your problem. Don't talk to me about that. <laughs> it's really sort of like, a, you know, there's a mutuality to it that I think is really healthy. And then I take an interest in the business side, to be honest with you, um, not because I'm fascinated with by budgets. I, I don't know anybody who is, <laughs> but because it makes a material difference in my life to make sure that this organization continues to exist. So I don't want to be one of those artistic directors who says, give me the moon. I must have everything now. Work it out. You know, and I've worked in enough symphony orchestras to know that that's a common model. And, and I want to be more cooperative than that. So I try in my own programming to say, okay, yeah, if we had a gazillion bajillion dollars, here's what I'd love to do. But let's be honest with each other. That's not the case. So what can I do to approach this in a thoughtful way and already, you know, make this an achievable goal, even if it's a stretch? And then I hand it off to Emma and she says, oh, okay, well, maybe yes, as opposed to, oh, my God, you're killing me. So there's like a, there's a, there's a mutual support society. And in Emma, despite her, her youth, um, she brings an extraordinary maturity and experience to this position that I haven't seen having worked with half a dozen executive directors in my time with the Desert Corral. And I just, I just can't say enough how much I appreciate her and her approach to this work that we do together. Oh, likewise. <laughs> 
It really is a mutual admiration society. (laughs) I I think you guys, you you both have sort of a good thing going. And and here's a a personal question I wouldn't mind throwing out there. What one piece of advice from your own sort of spheres of influence, your own experience, might you offer an ensemble like IOC, who's, you know, good community choir, sort of wants to make a little bit more impact, wants to sort of get to the next level, What's a thing you would tell an organization of that size or of that 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 establishment to focus on? Well, I can say something from the administrative side, which is um, keep the priority, the art, that has to be the top priority, but with it, um, have exceptional um, financial sustainability. You know, there is there is no way that you can operate if you are not taking care of of what's going on behind the curtain. So that has been a real priority for me and has really been um, been a manifest in a way that I think has allowed us to um, get to a place, especially right now, where we are incredibly healthy as an organization. And I think that that has been our task and, and is what would be helpful for others as well. And when you say healthy, I mean, that's a thing that I think is a little bit foreign to us, which is, I mean, at the very basic, I would say, you know, don't program things beyond what you can earn or, you know, at least break even if you're a nonprofit. But is there a a formula or a healthy balance in there? Do you think some years are growing years and, you know, some years you just invest a little more because the art sort of needs to come first? How do you think about that? Well, I'd love, Josh, for you to talk about the artistic side of that. And I can touch on how you meet it um, on the administrative side. Yeah. I guess I'll go back to the original question and then kind of curve into that, which is um, artistically, you know, what we want to grow, we want to have a greater impact. Find your voice. Find what it is that you want to say. And it may not just be one thing. It may not be a soundbite. I want to say that new music is the greatest thing ever. I want to say every, every individual group and every individual director is going to have something that they have to share that is unique to that person. And so I, there was a point I remember when I started with Desert Corral where I, I was filled with a lot of supposed to's in my mind. Well, I'm supposed to because, you know, and you could fill in the X and the Y of that sentence however you want. I'm supposed to program this music because this is what chamber choirs do. I'm supposed to do X because that's what my teacher said. All of that is valuable input, but there comes a point where you say, eh, there's no more supposed to's. As it turns out, there's no rules in this. So if you're going to be really impactful, the best thing that you can do is speak in your own voice and say whatever it is that you have to say that is potentially unique to you. Or it might not even be unique to you. You may follow a path and say, I'm a traditionalist and I love Brahms. I'm going to raise my hand on that one. And so I want to do an entire program of Brahms music, which is not something that has never been done before, certainly, but it's something that's worth doing because this is a great composer, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not, I'm not even fetishizing uniqueness. I'm just fetishized, like I, I'm committed to the idea that you have to find your voice, whatever that is. And the time that I've been the most artistically impactful, um, I feel, has been times when I've said something as honestly as I can through music without regard for whether it was well-received or not. And often it's been well-received and that's a, that's a bonus, but that's not the reason for doing it. So I think from an artistic standpoint, that's a growth point. And then finding yourself like, you know, if you put your voice out, there will be people who will hear you and say, me too. And you'll find your people. And not everybody's your people. That's okay, too. There's going to be people who will say, hey, 
I, I don't love this. I love this other thing. And you just bless and release them. And you say, oh, great, wonderful. Here's what we have to offer. But you will, if you're speaking authentically, find people that will resonate. If you're in the right place, right? And IOCSF, in that case, certainly is. I know, you know, I follow your programming and I know what San Francisco is about. So that's what I would say, just speaking artistically. Um, Emma, do you want to just sort of jump in and administratively talk about what it is to be healthy and, yeah. and growth? non-growth years and all that absolutely and also um i would to piggyback on what you just said i think um for you know the administrative staff for the operation um it can you know obviously we deal with the nuts and bolts of how the cake is made you know but we also have to find um we have to really anchor ourselves in that voice in the artistic voice of the organization and channel it so that people hear that voice um, in everything that we do. And so that is, you know, ever my challenge personally is just making sure that we are, are saying the same thing and we can amplify um, what is being said um, by, by Josh and, and by the corral. So um, in terms of growing and, and moving in that direction, you know, it's really taking a, a hard look and, and being steadfast in managing expenses, which is never fun, um, but critical. And then equally, um, at this, you know, while you're managing those expenses and making sure you're doing it um, as leanly as possible, also um, really looking at the, at the income side and, and figuring out how you can continue to grow um, what the organization is bringing in to make the dreams of the organization happen. And so it's, it's a process. I, I would say too, that um, there's two things related to that, that I think could be useful to a group that's just sort of on that cusp. One is marketing and thinking about marketing. Um, every board I've ever worked with comes with the same question, which is what kind of hits are you going to program this year so that we can fill our coffers? And it's a reasonable question. But I always have the same really disappointing answer, which is, uh, I've got bad news. There's no choral hits. <laughs> like, especially in symphonic music, maybe yes. Car uh, Carmina Burana by Orff, right? Verdi Requiem, Mozart Requiem, those things, maybe yes. But that's not what we do, right? So in the chamber choir zone, you know, what are the hits and how can we program them just so everything will be fine? And I always say, um, look, there are no hits. And the hits that we have you know, the Rachmaninoff Vespers, the Martin Mass for Double Choir. When you say that and somebody goes, ooh, the Martin Mass for Double Choir, I'll be there. Guess what? They were coming anyway. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't matter what you're performing. If they know the Martin Mass for Double Choir, they were on their way to your concert. You don't need to market to them. <laughs> That's wasted dollars. Similarly, there's people who will never darken the door of your concert, so you need to be cool with that, right? I don't want to hear choral music. Great. You go do football, you go do symphony, you go do rock concerts. I like all those things too. So I'm good with that. Like you, you do you don't market to those people. But do you think there might be an opportunity to do that sort of an intersection? I mean, we think about that a lot, especially in the bleeding edge of like new choral music, right? Where it's like, and, and maybe this is, this is to your point about finding your voice. Like maybe there is somebody who's, you know, writing the new greatest hit. I, I have no idea what the heck that might be, but are there times where you might want to do something like that? Sure. And there's multimedia and there's crossover and there's, and we do some of those things. 
you know, because we're trying to engage, um, you know, the, the last piece of that, like there's the people who are coming, the people who are not coming They're the third group. And this is the group that's important. The people who might come the movable middle, the movable middle. I call them choir curious. <laughs> I am so like, stealing, stealing that. that. I am yeah. absolutely stealing that. The choir curious. I love they, it. If you market the right thing, they might come. Well, that's where your marketing should be centered, right? And remember that we do a festival, which means we're we're just about the largest choral event that's solely a choral event in the United States, as far as I know. There are many larger festivals. Oregon Bach Festival is huge, but they do orchestra, they do chamber music, they do recitals. Just focus on the choir. We're the largest thing out there, as far as I know. So we have to have a lot of variety because we can't just do five early music concerts. We can't do 11 new compositions, right? We have to do a, a mix of things. So we're going to have a fairly wide range of programming by the nature of who we are and what we do. And then the last thing I'd say, just going back to that growth question, um, is I've seen over and over, we all have these aspirations. We want to do these things. Then we do the budget and it's so depressing. I mean, it's like the most depressing thing you could ever do because there's never enough money. I, I've never gotten to the point where it's like, wow. We can do all the things we want to do, and there's $30 left in the account at the end. Like, that never happened. Extra never streamers, happened. yeah. <laughs> never happened in the history of ever. So you're always like, oh, God, a deficit. Now what do we do, right? Okay, get lean. Very often, that's the point where magical thinking will take over. And the magical thinking says, I'll just raise an extra 30% this year. But there's no plan behind that. It's just, well, we just have to raise it. We have to get to zero at the budget. So we'll raise it. We'll find it. That's a perfectly good plan if there's a plan. But if the plan is we'll raise it and, you know, God will provide, I, I just don't think that's a plan. That's a hope. So I think that what Emma has been so good at is taking that aspirational growth that we've had, making it happen by actually creating an action step, step-by-step -step plan, which for the record does not guarantee success. In her case, it has been successful but it is a first necessary step to avoid the magical thinking of, we're just going to work it out. And then you get to the end of the year and suddenly you're in a huge deficit. And that's when we see organizations go away. Because as, to your point, you know, I've been working for the Dallas Symphony for 11 years. I'm not worried about the survival of the Dallas Symphony. You know, I'm concerned always about our fundraising and all those things, but I'm not concerned whether we're going to be there next year. But in small organizations, small deficits are existential. Mm -hmm. And small mistakes are, have big consequences. So I think avoiding that as you're taking that step into that next level, avoiding that magical thinking of it'll just happen, or I have to make it happen, I'll do it. If there's not a plan, then maybe you need to reconsider. Yeah, and I love the idea of planning out three years in advance. Oh my gosh. I mean, I feel like that's the other problem is like you get to a season, it's like, uh, okay, go, you know, and you sort of have these ideas of things that'll happen and no plan to get there. Whereas, you know, if you want to do a multimedia event that is, you know, it's a massive space that you've never done before and that takes time and you've got to figure out, it's, it's like the immigrant brain. It's like, I can hear my parents being like, don't buy things you can't pay for, you know, or can't figure out how to make that happen. And so I feel like that's probably an important part to remember uh, for folks as well. And, and it's and it's interesting how much of this, I I, I hate to say it this way because um, um, folks say this all the time and, and it's just like, no, 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 there's a thousand parts of it underneath it. But so much of what both of you are saying is like straight up common sense. It's like, 
you're, you know, Emma, to your point, it's like, yeah, you, you, there's no magical thinking. Like, if you are going to do something that requires $50,000 for a performance by the end of the year, somebody needs to pay for it. So, like, how's that going to work? Um, you know, and Josh, to your point of like, yeah, just tell your story. <laughs> like, don't try to, you know, find your voice, tell your story. I mean, those two bits of advice feel like they're so, um, such no-brainers. And yet we find ourselves tripping ourselves up along the way of like, you know, so many pitfalls along the way that we just fall victim to because we think something will happen or that people are in our brains and see the the long division math that we're doing and and often there isn't, right? It's just like, well, I guess it'll happen. And that's the thing. I mean, it feels like com- it really is common sense, but you have to remind yourself. I mean, I'm constantly, I have J- Josh's voice in my head all the time. Me too. Saying there's no such thing as a coral emergency <laughs> and I can, you know, sit back and get through this. I mean, that's, I think, so important to remember. I take that from my, I take that from my father, who is a surgeon. And when he had a bad day at work, it was a really, really, really bad day, you know? And when I have a bad day at work, the choir is out of tune. Like, I don't like that, but it's, the consequences are pretty minor, you know, relatively speaking. And I want to say, you know, I deal with the, I'm fortunate to have like the fun part of the organization. People applaud when we walk in the room. Like, who has that? That's not normal. You know, you get a lot of affirmation as the performer, but the unsexy bullshit stuff that you got to deal with when you're behind the curtain, that's like, that's heavy lifting. And that's why Karen feeding and an executive director is so important. <laughs> you know, it just, because, you know, even if that person doesn't crave the limelight to be out, you know, on the stage and all that kind of stuff, it's still not that much fun to have to deal with the stuff that, you know, that that person has to deal with. And in Emma's case, she does it with a great deal of grace. I don't know. There's, I kind of I kind of like bits and pieces of it, don't you, Emma? I kind of like problem solving <laughs> and like making random shit happen. Like it's actually kind of its own reward in this weird way. Pretty fulfilling. But, yeah. yeah. <laughs> God bless you. But not always. Not, not no, always. not always. <laughs> so, Josh, you mentioned this summer festival that the Desert Corral does and that it's a, a unique experience in the country. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. The Desert Corral Summer Festival dates back to our founding. And we have a particular model that, as far as I know, nobody else has in the country, which is the summer festival that is uniquely focused on a choir. In our case, 24 professional singers that come from all over the country that does multiple performances of multiple programs all at the same time. So what it becomes is this huge, we call it like the biggest choral camp in America. It's, you know, it's a choral event that is significant enough to actually attract people from all over the country. We see them coming, um, you know, we call them like choral pilgrims where they'll come and we run the, se- the season in such a way that it's almost like a repertory theater company in the sense that we'll rehearse, let's say we got three concert sets. We'll rehearse concert A, get it open, immediately start rehearsing concert B, but concert A is still open. And then we'll open B, but A is still running, so now you can see A or B on any given night, and then C, and you can see where I'm going. By the last two weeks of the season, we've got them all open, which means that people can come, and on Tuesday they can hear Brahms, and on Wednesday it's a Latin American program, and on Thursday it's new music, And in the meantime, they can also catch the opera on Wednesday night, the Chamber Music Festival on Friday, and maybe take Saturday off for hiking. So Santa Fe itself plays a role in the experience too, because it's such a beautiful place. So people will come and spend a week 
And here, maybe even you know six, seven, eight performances. There's some matinees that they can catch in an evening performance, and just make a real music pilgrimage of it, while at the same time being in this physically beautiful place and exploring the outdoors. So Santa Fe in the summer is completely unique. And as far as I know, we are the largest um, summer festival that's uniquely focused on the choir. So other festivals are extensive and really big. Oregon Bach Festival comes to mind. But there you're talking about orchestra and chamber music, different kinds of things. We're the biggest event that I know of that focuses uniquely on a choir. So we love to just, you know, for people to know that. And to know that the Winter Festival is also its own slice of heaven because Santa Fe is a mountain town, lots of snow in the wintertime, luminarias, which are these beautiful decorations that we put in the uh, lights on top of all the buildings. And our Winter Festival, which is usually a single program, sometimes two, but most often one, that we offer multiple times is also incredibly wonderful and just a great way to explore the chorales. So that's our basic frame around this, the season. And then we have occasional events in the off seasons. In the fall and the spring, we'll do tours, recordings, conference performances, and things like that. So it's a unique model um, that, uh, that has a lot to offer. So this has been a great conversation, y'all. It's it's we've I've learned a tremendous amount. I hope our listeners are are learning as well and buying their tickets to Santa Fe because this sounds like a really great choral camp, uh, and 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 uh, the, all of your programs really sound tremendous. Are there any programs coming up that you're particularly excited about sharing? Yeah, absolutely. Summer 2022, our 40th anniversary season. We are really excited. I right here in front of me on my desk are all the folders with the music in it. And this is the time of the year when I'm beginning to learn it and um, really dig in, which I just love. I get to be a musician. Um, and we have three different programs that we're really excited about. One is called The Sounding Sea. This is music uh, about, about and on the idea of water. And it includes everything from some Mason bass um, pieces, uh, some excerpts from his larger work called Sirens, which I really love, through some traditional Americana and um, uh, and uh, and just some great works from young emerging composers, which will be really fun. Uh, and then we have a piece uh, program called Mystics and Mavericks. This is all female composers, um, ranging all the way from medieval abbesses through contemporary composers and a new commission from Jocelyn Hagen, a bilingual commission in Spanish and English, which is particularly appropriate to our, um, uh, our place in the Southwest. Uh, Icelandic music, typically typically fun rarities that you can only hear the Desert Chorale do, um, and that's Mystics and Mavericks all summer. And then we've got a program um, called Mediterranean, and this is a program in which we talk about the three faiths of the Mediterranean basin and the three cultures, the Islamic culture, the Christian culture, and the Jewish culture, and their various expressions, especially through their folk music. Interfaith um, conversation through music has been something the Desert Chorale has been involved in in a long time. And uh, I'm a big believer in that intercultural communication. So we're really excited for that. And we actually got a player coming out from the Bay Area, Fatah Abu, a wonderful Moroccan folk musician who lives in Santa Cruz, will be coming out to play on that Mediterranean program. So there's a Bay Area connection there. We're really looking forward to the summer season. Fantastic. That sounds really exciting. And, you know, uh, through COVID, a lot of ensembles started streaming their concerts. And we actually, IOCSF, did that in December as well. And we found some good success in that. Is that something that the Desert Corral has started to implement into their uh, operations as well? And so can we watch a performance of the Desert Corral if we're not in Santa Fe? 
Yeah, I'll take that one. Um, we started streaming back in December of 2020 with our first program called Home for the Holidays. Um, we recorded that one um, in in different places. So we did a quartet of our of our artists in New York who all lived there. And so they were able to gather and, and follow all of the COVID um, guidelines and requirements of that time. And then we also did filmings around the country, um, folks, you know, in um, Nashville, we had Kathleen Rich in Santa Fe in our um, Cathedral Basilica. And then we did a um, silent night with everyone, all, all of our singers, all 24, singing silent night uh, one by one. In, uh, it was just beautiful. So that was our first foray. And then we recorded all of our summer concerts as well as our winter concert. And just this winter, uh, we have launched Desert Corral TV, which is a new uh, subscription service, an annual subscription, um, where you can you know, sign up and get all of our content all year long. Um, there's no restrictions uh, and no end date for when you can stop watching, when you have to stop watching our concerts. We also do individual tickets, but those are only available for a shorter time. So highly recommend signing up for the, for the annual and getting all of that content in one place. And where can uh, we direct our audience to find more information and to sign up? Desertcorral.org slash slash watch. That's where you can sign up for Desert Corral TV. And then you can also follow us, you know, on, um, on Instagram and Facebook where we share that information. I, we were joking about this earlier, but I will be calling both of you or I'm, I'm going to be, your phone's going to be blowing up with a thousand questions that I could probably <laughs> ask. We could go on for hours, I think, but I've already learned a tremendous amount from this conversation. I, I really appreciate it. I appreciate both of you. This is tremendous. And, and what you're doing with the, the Desert Corral is just inspirational, truly inspirational for, for folks like that folks like us. I agree completely. I mean, I studied with Josh personally, uh, you know, I got my master's degree at San Francisco State and Josh was my my teacher and so I hear his voice in my head a lot, especially when I'm standing in front of a chorus. Um, and I'd like to think that I embody some of the most, you know, uh, wonderful aspects of his style as a conductor and as a teacher. Um, but as one artistic director and executive director, which Giacomo is our new executive director for ISCSF, um, to be able to listen to the two of you talk about a 40-year-old organization that is, you know, still just really in its stride and doing such amazing work. It's very inspirational. I agree with you, Giacomo. It's, I feel like I personally have learned a lot, and um, that's the goal of this whole series of episodes is to talk with folks just like yourselves about what works and what doesn't work. And so that way our audience can learn from you and, uh, and improve their own uh, ensembles as they move forward. So it's, it's the golden age. We're, we're helping usher it in. Which is great. Exactly. Exactly. We've got a lot of information on what doesn't work too, just so you know, so if you want to have a conversation <laughs> over here sometime. We're just going to do it's a, blo blo it's a blooper reel. It'll be the worst of. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What not to do. <laughs> yes. We've got a lot of things that don't work and yeah. uh, happy to share that as well. Awesome. Well, it's been really, really wonderful um, getting a chance to chat with you again, Josh, and to meet you, Emma, and, and uh, have a nice conversation with both of you. So thank you so much for your time and for your information and just for your artistic passions. It's been great.
Yeah, rooting for you guys. I'm, I follow you, and as much as I'm, you know, I'm not very good at social media, as you guys probably would guess, but I do follow what you're what you're up to, and um, I'm always really thrilled to see you speaking in your voice, Zane, um, through IOCSF, because I've I've been um, I've been watching your stuff, and I think it's great. Oh, thanks. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, this is been a, just a great opportunity and and we love hearing from um from others who have you know tips on what works and what doesn't work as well so i'll definitely be following along to uh to listen to future episodes fantastic great well you guys have a wonderful rest of your day and we will talk to you again soon happy trails you. to wrap up today's episode we're going to let the desert corral take you home with stephen paulus's beautiful and heartwarming piece the road home. Enjoy.
Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the In Unison Podcast. Be sure to check out episode extras and subscribe at inunisonpodcast.com. You can follow us on all social media at inunisonpod. And leave us a review on Apple Podcasts to let us know what you think. COVID PCR and rapid tests coordinated by Chorus Dolores, who now knows the entire Greek alphabet. In Unison is produced and recorded by Mission Orange Studios. Our transcripts have been diligently edited by IOCSF member and friend of the pod, Fausto Daus. And our theme music is Mr. Puffy, written by Avi Bortnik, arranged by Paul Kim, and performed by the Danish vocal jazz ensemble Dynamic on their debut album, This Is Dynamic. Special thanks to Paul Kim for permission. Please be sure to check them out at www.dynamicjazz.dk.